This is the Cotswolds People podcast, brought to you by Alistair James Insurance Brokers. My name's Alistair, and throughout this podcast, I'm going to be speaking with a variety of very special guests from the worlds of business, sports, music, literature, politics, and many more, all of whom have a connection to the Cotswolds area of outstanding natural beauty. Do please leave us a review or rating, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear our latest guest interviews. This week, I chat with the CEO of the Cotswolds Distillery, Dan Zarr. The distillery itself is located in Shipton on Stour, and it places its whiskey production at the heart of everything it does at the distillery, using barley that has been grown only here in the Cotswolds. The distillery also produces its own Cotswolds dry gin, but it is the whiskey and the distillery's commitment to using locally sourced produce, which, as you'll hear, is something Dan is particularly proud of. All of our whiskey is is made using locally grown, uh, Cotswolds grown barley, um, which is very different to what you might find up in Scotland, where uh, people will rather quickly tell you on a tour where their malt comes from, as in the, the maltster who malted it. But when you ask where they got it, in other words, which farms, they really won't know. And, and this, this whiskey used in Scotch is, you know, it's big business. These are, you know, Diageo, Pernod Ricard, these huge companies, and the whiskey, uh, the the barley comes from farms not all over, not just all over the UK, but all over Europe. Whereas uh, our idea was that we wanted to make a whiskey that was truly 100% Cotswolds and using Cotswolds grain. Um, the problem with that is uh, you're very, it's very contingent on Cotswolds weather. For example, last year was all right. The year before was really horrible, um, actually, uh, and and it was difficult. Luckily, our farm and our the farmer that we work with. Um, did a good job and he got his crop in at the right time. And so the uh, the 18 harvest was was okay, uh, although very expensive because it was one of the only ones who had a decent harvest. Um, 19 was much better and we'll see what 20 is, is like. But we uh, we use a, it's a fifth generation farming family called the Greens um, that farm uh, on the, they're tenant farmers on the Blenheim estate. So they're in Coombe, so about uh, five minutes out of Woodstock, you know, Woodstock. Um, and, uh, so it truly is is Cotswolds uh, grown barley, which is very nice. Yeah, and so what what initially was the uh, you know the attraction of the Cotswolds to you? Obviously, not from the area originally. How how no. well aware of the area were you? Did you just yeah. stumble across it? What was the story? Gosh, well, the the first time dates back to probably uh, around it was the early nineties um, when a very good friend of mine, an American guy. Um, went off to do a year of uni in, in, in France and ended up meeting a girl from Chipping Norton, as you do, um, and falling in love, and they ended up getting married here. Well, the strangest thing is they got married in Chipping Norton, but then the reception was at the home of a woman uh, who lived in, in Storton, which is like the village that we're in. Um, and so I was standing, uh, was that 25 years ago, um, probably about three, four hundred meters away from where the distillery is. With, uh, and, and I was a young American guy working on Wall Street, basically. And if you had told me that 25 years later, I'd be living in the middle of nowhere, three miles to the east, and, uh, and making whiskey 400 meters away, I would have never believed it. But um, that, that trip was the first time I, I got to know the Cotswolds. But then I, I moved from New York, not to Britain, but to France. I lived there for 11 years. And then after that, I moved via New York for a year or two to London. And um, I had remarried. My wife was English, and uh, we both loved uh, 
Cotswolds and we both wanted to be able to, uh, we, we, we both had pretty crazy jobs. She's a consultant neurologist in a big London hospital. And we really wanted to spend weekends in, in, in nature, basically in a, in a more natural setting and get out of London. So we, we found a, a beautiful, really isolated sort of barn conversion um, on two acres of land surrounded by 600 acres of farm that we don't own. Um, and we just sort of sit in the middle of it. And uh, it was the perfect weekend getaway. Neither of us ever imagined us living full time uh, out here. Um, we thought that we were city people who thought the country is what you do from Friday to Sunday, kind of. Um, but we just slowly just fell more and more under its charms. Um, and really were, and Sunday nights got to be very depressing, sort of to have to go back into into the city, into town, and, and wait five days to get back out here. We just wanted to live more of our lives out here. And then the firm I had worked for for nearly 30 years did me the favor of going, going out of business and uh, uh, kind of forcing my hand on deciding whether I wanted to stay in the business I was in, which was um, kind of uh, currency management, um, which wasn't particularly exciting um, to me, um, or do something that really was a passion. And I'd always had a passion for single malt whiskey. So, uh, the idea for the distillery came actually literally on a summer day in 2012, looking out on what was a field of spring barley planted outside my, my bedroom window. Um, and just the idea of putting together two things I love, uh, which is whiskey and the Cotswolds. Um, and I thought with all this barley growing here, why hasn't anyone ever made any whiskey? And uh, you know, the 30 million visitors a year kind of came into it and, and thinking we could make a, a destination distillery in the same style you might find up in Scotland where you can tour and see it and understand the process, et cetera. That's how it all started. Brilliant. Okay. I mean, I was going to say, actually, I've got a, uh, it was my 40th literally about a month ago and I was given a, a voucher for the uh, the tour and uh, tasting. Oh, but great. obviously at, at the moment, obviously I can't... Uh, <laughs> can't uh, come and see you so uh, i'm looking forward to uh, to w- when we can so um yeah. but yeah so um, from setting you mentioned 2012 what i mean the process of saying right i'm going to do it to actually happening in terms of getting it all started how how big a process is that well it, it's a huge process it starts with when you ask yourself if you're ready to you know put your life savings into something which you have no idea will work or not uh, and whether you'll given my exquisite lack of experience uh, in making whiskey. Um, I only knew as much about making whiskey as somebody, you know, a whiskey geek who had been on a few dozen whiskey distillery tours up in Scotland uh, would. Um, And so it begins with whether you're willing to, quite literally in our case, bet the farm on it, um, which uh, bizarrely I I was, and my wife even more bizarrely was willing to support me in it. Um, But then it continues on to... um, I think what's really important is the sort of the total humility of realizing you don't know what you're doing and you'd better damn well get some, some good help. And we were very lucky. We got some of the best help you could possibly get. We got to two Scottish gentlemen who between them had a hundred years of experience in making uh, whiskey. Um, one of them, uh, a gentleman by the name of Harry Coburn, who was 77 years old at the time and had a 50 year career in the whiskey business. And um, Harry had run the Beaumont distillery up in Isla. And he was retired and helping start up the distillers as a consultant. And he was engineer in my background. So he understood all the things about the process because this is ultimately an industrial kind of a process. Um, the other gentleman was a guy by the name of Jim Swan, who sadly passed away two years ago. But Jim, uh, where Harry was the engineer, Jim was the chemist. And uh, uh, the, they, they used to call him the Einstein of whiskey because he understood 
the chemical intera interactions between whiskey and wood, how to best age whiskey, how to best make whiskey that will give you the flavor profile you're looking for. And so we have Jim to thank for uh, helping us to create a whiskey, which we hope is a real reflection of the Cotswolds, uh, the, 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 the feel, the flavor kind of the Cotswolds. And so if somebody said, does the Cotswolds whiskey have a, a taste? How would you try and describe that, the Cotswold taste? We think there's a definite taste to the Cotswolds, uh, to the sort of the, the house style um, of our whiskey. Um, we, um, you know, we, we, had, we had the luxury of being the first ones ever to make whiskey in the Cotswolds, so we sort of got to decide what a Cotswolds whiskey should taste like. And I kind of thought, well, you know, if you have some of the super peated Isla malts which are wonderful and especially if you've been on isla particularly on a blustery day and you know you you, you completely get it um but we don't have the, the 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 peaks we don't have the crags the glens the crashing surf the you know the, the cliffs of scotland it's it's a less dramatic scenery but it's equally beautiful in its own way it's more of a sort of almost like a, like a turner painting or a you know a monet i mean it's an impressionist landscape so i felt that the a cotswolds whiskey ought to be approachable and gentle and it ought to reflect what is grown in the cotswolds and what's grown in the cotswolds is largely fruit and cereals so fruit and grain were the kind of notions we, we wanted a very fruity whiskey but we wanted it to be rich and full of in flavor and uh, Jim Swan showed us how to do that, basically. And do you find, is there a bit of a, you mentioned about obviously the, the Scottish whiskey, uh, sort of diehard people, is it, you know, trying to show that you can compete with the, Scot the Scottish distilleries? Is that, ever, is that a challenge? No, I, I, we're, we're, we're not trying to compete with, you know, um, you know a few hundred years of, of history and heritage, and most importantly of late, the sort of corporate money that's gone into making Scotch whiskey you know, um, a global luxury brand as opposed to what uh, most of those beautiful little whiskey distilleries in the Highlands were when they started out, which were farm distilleries. I mean, whiskey making started out as a job done by farmers who had extra crop. And, uh, you know, what can you do with that crop? Well, you can malt your barley and you can make beer out of it, but that only lasts so long. But if you, if you, if you distill that and take the spirit off of it, it'll last sort of forever and it's a great store of value. So whiskey making was originally a farm-based uh, business and uh, on our beautiful site here we've got four acres it's a former farm and it sort of looks looks kind of the, the, the part and what we do here is we make whiskey the way you might have seen it made in Scotland about 50 years ago um, uh, that is with no computers no technology um, with a bunch of guys who have gone from never having made whiskey in their lives to becoming really true artisans true craftsmen and doing everything by hand and so what we find is that those, those Scots really in the know, um, whether they're in the business or just you know, folks who know their whiskey, and they come down and they see what we're doing, usually they're pretty charmed by it all. And it's again, it's done with all you know, homage and respect to, to a great tradition of making whiskey. We don't want to rewrite the book on that, but we do want to make whiskey the way whiskey was made before it was made by a bunch of PLCs kind of you know, doing it mainly for the, you know, the P&L of it sort of. You know. And what do your, uh, when your friends back home make of it when you said, you know, back in America when you, you were coming here and doing the whiskey, how, what have they made of it all? Well, actually, um, so my, my, my best friend was kind of my partner in crime. He was my whiskey buddy and we would sort of do a boys trip once a year. I'd go up to Scotland and I like that film Sideways, you know, two, two sad middle-aged men driving around and, and drinking booze kind of, that was when you could do that kind of, but, um, uh, 
so we both sort of went on this journey of discovering whiskey and, and what whiskey could be, the, the different sort of horizons and different types of flavors and, and the sense of terroir and provenance. Um, so I don't think he was all that surprised, but I think a lot of others maybe were. Um, I did have a nickname that was given to me by the folks I used to work with, um, and that was Mr. Coca-Cola, because I was the guy who was always very consumerist in his marketing um, sort of uh, strategy um, for something that wasn't very interesting. It was an algorithmic currency trading system, but I guess I always related better to things on an emotional level. So for me, this is you know sort of the best you could ask for, because I can, I can be out there communicating the values is something that I really believe in and I really love. And, and thankfully, even when no one's looking at night and I go and grab a little dram after dinner and I got about 200 bottles, I can pretty much drink what I want. I'm always going for hours because it's, it's I'm actually making a whiskey that I would want to drink, which is what I dreamed of being able to do. Well, I was going to ask that when you set up, did you say, this is the taste I want and I'm going to produce it? How much of it is that? And how much is you looking at the market and tailoring it towards that? Was it very much, it sounds like it sounds like you're very focused. It's a Cotswolds whiskey and that is, yeah. that's how it's going to be. Well, I, I'd love to say that I looked at the market and, you know, it, traditionally that's what you do when you launch a consumer brand is you, you do a market analysis and, uh, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and this was all stuff I didn't know how to do. I, in fact, actually, I tell people I didn't know I was going in the drinks business, which I was, to be an entrepreneur, it takes a rare um, combination, I think, of, of courage and complete ignorance. And um, uh, and I just wanted to make a whiskey that I would be proud of and that I would want to drink. And that's harder than it sounds because I had visited a lot of craft distilleries in the States. Uh, craft distilling, kind of small scale distilling, took off about 10 years earlier in the States than it did in the UK. And I went around and visited a lot of them and they had great stories and great looks and great people, really interesting, you know, really wonderful. And then you would taste the whiskey and it was just like, yeah, no, no, I just, I wouldn't, you know, and it goes on the back of the shelf and you never touch it again. And that's really what I wanted to make something that I would actually really want to drink. And I, I think I've got a, I don't have a, a, a strange palate or a very unique palate. I think what I like, most people sort of like, and, and we've managed to do that. We didn't know that in the beginning though. That's the thing. When you start making whiskey, uh, you're, you're making what's called new make spirit. It's unaged whiskey. It's clear. It's no colorless, you know, and, and it doesn't taste like with a finished product. It, it takes a few years in wood for it to become, you know, the, sort of the taste of whiskey. So when we first made the spirit, we had no idea whether or not it would make good whiskey. Um, and it took us about three or four months in the fourth quarter of 2014 um, to really get it right. And it was with Jim Swan's help. And by Christmas of 2014, we had made a new make spirit, which was genuinely delightful. And in fact, actually, we're so proud of it that you can buy our new make spirit at 63 and a half ABV. Um, so it's pretty, pretty hairy, pretty, pretty punchy. Um, we call it white pheasant um, uh, because it's white dog in the States for moonshine. And so for us, it's Cotswold, so it's white pheasant. Um, and you can, you can buy that on our website and not many people would necessarily drink it neat. Some might. Northern Europeans seem to like that kind of aquavit sort of pure alcohol taste. But it lets people see, you know, people ask us, how can you make a good whiskey that's three years old? I thought whiskey had to be 10 years old or 15 years old. I said, well, that's what the Scots would have you sort of believe. But actually, if you take really good quality spirit and you put it into really good quality barrels, you get a really good whiskey in three years. So that was, uh, that's how we did it. And then I just, I guess that's the hard thing, I guess, about whiskey when you set up a distillery, isn't it? It's not production, then you can start selling straight away. It's a, it's a long process, isn't it? 
Oh, yeah. Financially, it's not something I would wish on my worst enemy, to be honest. I mean, you talk about working capital cycles of, you know, 60, 90 days, 100 days. This is a five-year working capital cycle. So you're making stuff you won't be realizing the benefit of in, in any way um, for years and years and years. But thankfully, that's where gin came in. And gin was the biggest surprise of the Cotswolds facility because it was not something for which I would have sort of built the distillery. Um, I, I liked my GNTs, but I wasn't sort of gin crazed i was whiskey crazed um and but we thought not everybody you know is a whiskey lover and we should have other things and particularly things that don't take three years to age and things that we could put on our shelf in our shop if we start to to, to run tours and, and, and whatnot um so we started making gin about the same time we started making whiskey in q4 of of, of 2014 and to our great surprise um uh our gin sort of went viral um uh we ended up uh, getting a listing. Our first listing was from Fordham and Mason, um, and it came within a week of the first spirit coming off the stills. And then Harvey Nichols followed suit. Then Majestic offered us a, a, a regional listing, which eventually became semi-national and a national listing, and on and on and on. And now we're in Waitrose and Ocado and Amazon and all these places, and we're in 40 different countries. Um, uh, and, and that gin really... Um, it helped us a lot because of the cash flow, obviously. It, it, you can sell it right away. I mean, you can make it on a Tuesday and sell it, maybe not quite on a Wednesday, but it, it's about a one to two week process. Um, and we came up with a very original recipe um, uh, that is very botanically intense. Um, so it, it's a more sort of pungent and aromatic gin than most and very creamy in texture. And, and, that, and of course, we were helped by the fact that gin as a category has seen growth over the last few years in this country like uh, it's never seen before. Um, a true uh, genesance, as they say. Yeah, and that's all locally uh, produced as well, isn't it? I was seeing on your Facebook page uh, a couple of Ollie's videos. He's out in the countryside talking about all the you know the local produce that goes into it. It's uh, quite fascinating, Absolutely. actually. Absolutely. Well, we can't we can't source all our botanicals locally. Um, you know, peppercorns uh, is one of our botanicals. Black pepper wouldn't grow here, nor would grapefruit particularly well, and and lime. Um, but um, there is uh, uh, one of one of the nine botanicals in our gin is as local as you can get, and it's uh, Cotswold lavender, uh, which comes from the beautiful Cotswold lavender farm on Snows Hill, um, uh, just over just above Broadway, and um, incredible place to go, particularly in a few weeks. Uh, they'll be harvesting usually at the end of July, and really worth a, a visit. It's a, it sort of feels like you're in the, in the south of France, but you're actually up on on, on the high wold, sort of right above Broadway. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we get our lavender from, from Snow's Hill, and then otherwise everything is made at the distillery in some very small batches. And uh, that original idea we had of uh, getting people in um, to, to see the distillery has turned into 30,000 people a year. Uh, so we run three tours every day, seven days a week, and they're all pretty much booked up. That was pre, pre-coronavirus, and we'll have to sort of uh, start that up again very slowly, you know, as and when, you know, that, that it's sort of, it is safe. Um, we are hoping to reopen uh, our three shops. We have uh, the distillery shop uh, at the distillery, and then we have a shop um, in Borden on the Water, and we have one in Broadway now. Um, and we hope to open all three of them in time for the weekend of the third, uh, fourth and fifth of July, I think it is, or third and fourth of July. Um, and then who knows, maybe the cafe, you know, we built a new visitor center last year, which is beautiful. Uh, here at the distillery and it has a really nice cafe um we hope maybe that'll be up and running by the end of the summer so we can still get a few weeks of the summer 
brilliant and the tour and tasting which hopefully i'll be able to go on soon that's yeah. for whis- whiskey and gin is it for people that want to come it is it is it's all together in one small it's all under one roof so we have uh we have our two gin stills lorelei and dolly and uh, our two whiskey stills mary and janice it's traditional to name stills after ladies ours are all musical ladies there's a story behind each one of them but uh, yeah and you uh, can see both of those and you can see the whiskey warehouse and um, see how we bottle sort of through the windows of our bottling hall and then uh, it ends up in a beautiful beautifully appointed tasting room where uh, the sky's the limit in terms of what you can taste and those who drive uh, can even bring home what we call a driver's dram well it was my birthday treat so I definitely won't be driving I don't think that time yeah, so uh, <laughs> um, and you touched upon coronavirus how has that affected you know your production and, as well is that a big impact mm. on you or you managed to sort of muddle a little get through it we've been um certainly luckier than some in certain industries. I mean, we've had our, our difficulties, obviously, again, uh, the three shops have had to shut down and no tours, and, and that was a big part of our revenue. Um, uh, on the other hand, that's been made up for uh, by very, very strong uh, sales on our website. Um, so we have uh, an online store where people can buy pretty much all of our spirits, including uh, what we call distillery exclusives, which are spirits which are not sold in in the trade, so to speak, in, in the shops, but just by ourselves. Um, uh, fun things like uh, limoncello, summer cup, whiskey amaro, uh, so whiskey liqueurs, etc. Um, and those are all available on our website, and that's that's definitely helped. And then in terms of our wholesale business, um, of course, the, um, the, the bars, uh, restaurants, and pubs have not been ordering uh, of late, uh, but the shops have been ordering. So you know, we've, we've kind of, one's made up for the other, and a lot of the staff that are involved in the hospitality end of our business have been on furlough, but we are looking forward to having them back with us in, in July. And uh, uh, everybody who is, we've continued to make whiskey and gin and bottle, so our production's been going on, and everyone who's been non-essential has been, um, you know, sort of non-essential to production, I should say, um, has been working from home. So basically all of our sales, marketing, and admin have been from home, and that's worked very well, but... Uh, I will say I'm actually speaking to you from the distillery. I nipped in here for a meeting a few minutes ago. I only live three miles away and uh, it's really nice to be back here. Yeah. I I think everyone's feeling that now, aren't they? I know a lot of this is getting back to uh, trying to get back to some sort of uh, normal if they can. So uh, and on on the whiskey, I mean, from my own industry, obviously working in insurance, whiskey is one of those areas, certainly for collectors where, you know, the, the value is going up a lot actually lately as people have revalued etc what what do you think the reason is for that is it does it be a global increase not just you know in england and scotland that seems across the world what, why do you think the reason for that is yeah. this well i th- i think it's that you know it's 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 the same as you would have for any sort of luxury item which is limited in supply um uh and uh and there there are and it's it's quite collectible you know it's become quite a thing over the last 20 years to collect whiskies um, it's something which you know one can have as an investment, but one can also offer one's friends as well. Very often, people will um, will will will, will uh, what's the saying? Uh, you buy three bottles: one to drink, one to collect, and one to share with friends. Um, uh, but um, uh, I have never really been personally um, that sort of whiskey um, fan. Um, I kind of have always felt that a uh, an unopened bottle of whiskey is a bit of a sad thing. It's 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 meant to be enjoyed. So, uh, you know, the 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 rare, you know, 
expensive bottle that I've, that I've had has not lasted very long because if it's good, then eventually, you know, it comes out for company, uh, the good company, the ones you want to offer, the people who appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we, we've always felt that it's important to, to keep a very sort of, uh, uh, affordable pricing strategy. We, you know, we, we, uh, you'll see a lot of new whiskeys coming out, which are over a hundred pounds, which we just feel for a, a, a young whiskey is, I, I understand the financial difficulties that new whiskey makers have and why they would price it that way. But I think it's really important to keep, uh, both your flavor profile and your price approachable. Um, so that's what, that's what we believe in. And unfortunately, um, you know, we're still pre-profit as they say, um, it takes a good 10 years really to, 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 to turn a profit in, in whiskey. It's a long-term business. So yours truly won't be buying any of those, um, expensive whiskey bottles anytime <laughs> soon, but I'm very happy to, that I have a good supply of my own to drink. In so. Well, exactly. Yeah. And celebrate when it does all get back to normal, no doubt, but yeah, it sounds like you're very absolutely. much in it for the, the long game, I suppose. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so when you get to that 10 years, is that the sort of mark where people, you know, the, the 10 year whiskey is that seen as the, you know, that, when that gets finally uh, released, you know, that's when, uh, people start to come a bit more maybe, or, you know, you say the three years still people consider it very new, don't they? Whereas 10 years is that the sort of milestone yeah. people want to get to? Well, to be honest, I don't, I don't think that's going to really be the case with us because, um, so, you know, because we are such a believer that age is a bit of a misnomer and, and a marketing uh, tool, um, and that you can have 10 year old or 15 year old whiskeys that, you know, you like less that you fancy less than, than the three year old whiskey. Uh, we've decided it would be disingenuous as even if we were at 10 years to be sort of really flaunting a, a number, which is frankly a number that's much easier for those who've been around for a hundred years to throw out there, uh, even though their production techniques might not necessarily be as quality focused as ours. So our whiskey is what they call NAS non age, no age statement. Um, uh, but it's very clear for everybody to see because it says on the bottom, on the on every bottle established 2014 when we got started. Uh, so we're not sort of trying to to pull the wool over anyone's eyes, but we do think that it's just what what's going to create the the bigger demand sort of for our whiskey is a greater number of people being exploratory in their whiskey tasting, looking for new things, looking for different things. There's a whole category which is growing quite fast called world whiskey. And that's basically whiskey not made in the traditional places like Scotland, Ireland, Kentucky. Um, it's whiskey that might be made in Taiwan. There's a great whiskey distillery in Taiwan. Uh, Japanese whiskey now is actually an established thing. There's, I think, tw over 20 whiskey distilleries in Tasmania and Australia. There's great single malt being made in the Netherlands and France and Denmark and Sweden, you name it. Um, and that's a group that we're very conscious of sort of wanting to be a part of. But what's more even more exciting is, is that they're actually English whiskey is going to become a thing. Um, uh, it's not something I knew uh, or expected when I built this, but the, I wasn't the only person to have this idea. And as we speak, there are now 25 distilleries in England making whiskey. Um, and at that size, you have a category, you know, and, and we actually, I mean, one of the nice things about this business is, you know, we may compete a bit on the shelves, but actually we're quite, close to one another distillers we're and we're talking about actually creating an english whiskey sort of guild or association um to work in common and in conjunction with one another to promote the category of english whiskey so i think that it, rather than it being a, a defined timeline it's going to be once you know this past year we had i think two or three new english whiskeys released one from the lake district um one from a distillery in london uh, one from yorkshire 
Um, and uh, I think that the more and more you see that, the more and more people will be drawn to experiment and, and try English whiskey, which is great. We love that. I really enjoyed chatting with Dan there, and I actually can't wait now to visit the distillery and enjoy tasting some of their spirits. And I think the fact that they're produced all from locally sourced ingredients here in the Cotswolds is fantastic. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening, do please leave us a review or rating and be sure to subscribe to be first to hear our latest episodes. This podcast was brought to you by Alistair James Insurance Brokers of Cheltenham. We provide personal insurance for high-value homes and contents, including fine art, collectibles, jewellery and watches, and for commercial insurance, a variety of sectors including commercial property, liability and construction. Visit our website, ajamesinsurance.co.uk and see the link to it in our show notes or follow us on all the usual social media channels to find out how we can help with all your insurance requirements. Thank you.